Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. I don't know what you sensed during that worship time. Don't know what you were feeling in your heart. Don't know what you were feeling in your spirit. Um, I was sitting in back, uh, singing, worshiping in back, and there was just a, a sweet, I, I felt the sweet presence of God that was here in this place as we worshiped him. And I don't know if you thought much about the words that we were singing, um, specifically the second to last song, I Surrender. Um, interesting, that's kind of the direction I'll be going this evening in speaking, but, but if you think about the words that were mouthing to God, my, my heart's cry all day in prayer has been, God, may it be that. May it be that, a spirit of surrender to you that would move the, the heart of God in a specific sort of way as we break into this topic this evening. So I don't know what you're sensing. I don't know what you're feeling. Um, I love, as you well know, missional-type gatherings. I love speaking on the topic of mission. Tonight I feel slightly out of my realm because it feels like God has burdened me with a topic that, that I must speak about. And it seems to shift the direction slightly, but actually it's not shifting it at all. It's just taking another approach and look at God's activity in our lives propelling forward the concept of mission. And so um, I'm just going to be open, and I would ask that you would be open, sensitive to the Spirit of God and how he's leading you. What he's already spoken to you, he's already spoken, right? Like last evening, we... Um, maybe I'll just go back to the beginning. In the, yesterday morning, we looked at co-laboring with the Father in the extraordinary mission that he has called us to. And we talked about the fact that God asks us to co-labor with him, why he does that, why he chooses to do it that way. Only God knows. But, but I praise God for that fact that we get to be part of a grander picture of the kingdom of God on earth. Have you ever asked yourself the question, like I have many, many times in my life, more previous than now, but the day that you surrendered your life to Jesus, the moment that you gave yourself to him and said, God, you've, you've got me, you've got me, I'm, I'm yours, I'm willing to follow you, I, I believe in the blood of Jesus, I'm a sinful man or woman, uh, you've broken me, I'm yours. In that minute, in that moment, Maybe these questions don't go through your mind, but why didn't, why didn't God just whoop, take you out? Over. Just be with him, right? I don't know if that question has ever crossed your mind. It has crossed my mind often, and I'm convinced that one of the answers to that is that if God would obviously remove the church, if he would remove the Christ Christians and Christianity from earth, um, it would leave a gaping hole on earth with a lot of work to be done. Now, again, God has designed this whole thing with humanity in mind. Uh, why he's done that, I, I don't know, but I praise him for it. Because we get to be part of a grander picture, again, of what the kingdom of God is on earth as we are growing and developing and maturing to ultimately be with him in paradise. And that's the ultimate reward, folks. Uh, we're kind of anticipating, I pray, anticipating that day of receiving Jesus back in the clouds and going to be with him and worshiping him forever. 
These are biblical facts, but we're still here, right? So last evening, in the morning, we had talked about co-laboring, and we developed the theme a little bit further last evening when we looked at uh, objective, right? Driven by objective, understanding our why. Why do I exist? Why do I feel the way that I, that I do? What is that, what is that kind of sort of hidden thing that perhaps I can't see in you, but that vision or passion that God has given you, I explained my mind is a little bit compartmentalized, and so I view that as a little box off to one side, and, and I, I can tell you clearly what that, that macro vision is that God has called us to. I explained some of that last evening as relates to the vision that we have to minister in the city that we're in. But what is that, what is that thing, that, that element that kind of sort of drives you, but maybe you've kept that hidden, and I'm, I'm praying that God has stirred your heart through that, and maybe some of you have talked to others about that vision, that little thing, right, that, that kind of stirs your heart, um, because we want to be responsible before God to unlock that box and start to move the direction that God has called us to. So that topic was driven by objective and understanding our why. And another thing we talked about last evening was in fulfilling that and moving towards the objective the thing we looked at was that that is not always the place of perfect harmony. That is not always the place of uh, everything's going to go fine just because I'm in the will of God and doing God's will, right? It's also the place where struggles happen, difficulties come, uh, earthquakes happen, hurricanes happen, storms happen, torments happen. Difficulties take place in that sphere and in that, in that space, but it's also the place of perfect peace. It's also where we can be at peace with God, knowing we're doing what God has asked us to do. And I wouldn't trade that for anything in life, to stand here honestly. I made the comment that the last five years of our time in the city of Utica, where we're living, probably have been some of the more difficult years of our pilgrimage uh, as a family, as individuals. Just things shake the boat. But it's also the place where we feel the most at peace to be where God, God is asking us to be. And so my challenge to you based on that last evening is, what is your objective? Why do you do the things that you do? And that's going to lead into tonight's topic. And I'm going to read a verse. And this is going to set the stage, I believe, for what the rest of the evening will look like. But it'll all be in the context of thinking about co-laboring and thinking, thinking about objective and thinking about why do I do the things that I do, okay? I'm going to read this verse. Just listen carefully. You'll understand it. You'll know the verse as soon as I read it. And this is Jesus speaking. Please don't miss these words. Crucial. But you, Jesus was speaking to disciples, followers of him, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. We hear that verse often, I, I think. We read it often in Acts 1.8. We, we've read it. We probably, some of us have probably memorized it. Um, we've heard it probably talked about. We've, we've thought about it maybe a little bit. But don't miss what Jesus is talking about here because there's some interesting words that come out in Acts 1 verse 8. And one of those words is the word power. As Christians, 
we're not necessarily in search of power, right? We're not looking to step on people. But what this verse is actually talking about is not so much stepping on people as it is the, the power of God to go do what God wants you and me to accomplish as we understand our objective. And so tonight, the burden of my heart, and I'm going to keep this very simple. I want to keep it very surface level. I want to give some examples. But it's to talk about the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer as relates to mission. Not just mission, but specifically pointed that direction, the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of of a believer who wants to be on mission for Jesus. And I think I could easily ask for a raise of hands, and I'm assuming I'd probably get almost 100% response from you if a question went out like this, do you want to be on mission for Jesus? My assumption is that your hands would probably go up. That's my assumption. Maybe some of you don't want to be. I'm not trying to force you into that. I'm just kind of putting that out there. And so my question to you is, how are you going to accomplish that? What is going to be the drive uh, that keeps you honed in on that objective and understanding your why you do the things that you do? What's going to keep you on passionate and passionate drive towards the objective of God that God has given you? Again, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my another key word, witnesses, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want us to think a little bit outside the box tonight, just to be honest with you. I want us to think about the activity of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And I don't want to get into a a, a type of a debate around cessationism versus whatever. What I want to talk about is the, the, the biblical facts of who the Holy Spirit is, how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit, and also the activity of the Spirit specifically related to mission. And I think it's going to clarify itself as we work through just some simple passages. And then I'm going to share some stories along that line to hopefully reveal a little bit of how in the practical that has worked out in my life and in our lives. And you all can fill in the blanks of your own stories. I think we need to become accustomed to the voice of the Spirit, to be very frank and honest. I think we need to be pursuant of the Spirit. I think we need to be thinking a little bit outside the box as to where the Spirit of the Lord is leading us to. We talk about Him, right? We occasionally mention Him in prayer. We read about Him in the Bible. But what's His activity? What, what is His role, if you will? What is His purpose? Let's turn to the book of John, and there's a couple of chapters I'm going to just stay in. Um, In John chapter 14 is where we're going to start. There's a smattering of verses in John 14, 15, and 16 that kind of allude to what the Holy Spirit does, okay? I want to clarify first and foremost that the Bible is clear. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you're not saved, Okay? The Bible's clear about that. Okay? When, when we come to know Jesus and we have that kingdom transfer from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, in that transfer, there's a new presence that comes into me, and that is God abiding in me. It's an amazing thing. Emmanuel, God with us. 
Just a phenomenal thing if you think about the fact that God resides in your life in the power of the Spirit. Let that sink in. Let that just jiggle in there a little bit. That's a powerful statement um, that, that we have in Scripture that talks about the salvific work of the Holy Spirit. We can't come to God unless the Spirit's drawing us to the Father. Obviously, our surrender in that is what brings us into relationship with God, but the Spirit's drawing us in. Let's not forget His work. And that's why I want to go to these verses, because I think they'll clarify the activity and the work of the Spirit as relates to life, everyday life, and as relates to ministry and mission specifically, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? And so in John chapter 14, verse 26, just one verse, Again, Jesus is speaking in all these passages, okay? So this is Jesus' own teaching. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So, so what does that verse tell us? I think it's kind of clear. The Spirit will teach us and remind us of the things that Jesus said. Is that important? Absolutely. It's of utmost importance, right? If we want to know the ways of Jesus, we need to have the ability to to retain and to think about the ways of Jesus. And in those spur-of-the-moment decisions and conversations and uh, mountaintop and valley experiences of life, I want to know the ways of God. I depend on the Spirit of God to lead me, to remind me of the things that Jesus said. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, some versions will say the Advocate. When the Helper comes, or the Advocate, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. That's an important key passage. The Spirit testifies of who Jesus actually is. It's, it's an outflowing of the Spirit. It's one of the things that the Spirit does, testifying of who Jesus is. Is that important? Absolutely. Absolutely. We need the power of the Spirit to understand how to testify as to who Jesus is enlightened by the Spirit. Chapter 16, verses 7 and 8 of John go on to say, Jesus speaking, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper or the advocate will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So what's the ongoing activity of the Spirit? Well, in those verses, specifically in verse, uh, in verse 7, it says that the Spirit will convict the world of sin on one hand and of righteousness and of judgment. Again, my question, it's, it's a simple question. Is that important? Is it important? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what's also interesting is that I would love to have Jesus sitting here, Right? In, in the person that he was and is when he was walking on earth. We would love to have him here. But Jesus is saying, it's far better, folks. It's far better that I go. 
Because I will send the advocate. I will send the helper. And he will convict of sin and righteousness and justice. How important is that? As you think about life and ministry and mission, it's of utmost importance. It's of utmost importance. We're going to break these down a little bit more later, but uh, John chapter 16, a little bit further, verses 13 and 14, Jesus continuing to speak in 13 and 14, says the following, "However, However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Interesting. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So again, what is the ongoing activity or the work of the Spirit in these verses? On one hand, Jesus is saying that the Spirit will guide you, me, into truth. Is that important? Absolutely. Who here wants to know truth? Why are you here? Why would you dedicate time to study a lot of different subjects, but in one hand, the Word of God? Why would you want to be here? Well, I pray one part of it certainly is that you will understand what truth is, right? And so the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And then the second part of that in verse 14 says that the Spirit will glorify Jesus. He will exalt the name of Jesus. Is that important? Absolutely. Think about your objective. Think about co-laboring with the Father. We're not done, but think about all those things that we've talked about the last two sessions and now into the third session. How important is it that all these things that the advocate or the helper or the spirit was promised to bring, how important are all those things in your life as relates to your ministry that God is directing you towards? That, that box, right? That, that objective that perhaps only you know or maybe a few people around you know, like that's your vision, that's your dream, that's something you're aiming at. How important is it that the Spirit is working in and through you making all these things come to reality? Because, folks, it's ultimately about the name of Jesus. It's ultimately about the name of Jesus. The Spirit reveals Jesus. He brings glory to Jesus. He exalts Jesus. That's the activity of the Spirit. Another very interesting passage, and it's kind of a little bit of a, of a parallel. A little bit different, but a little bit of a parallel. In another well-known passage, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, if you think back to the original verse that we read in Romans chapter, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we talked about Jesus' promise to the disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came on them. Not just into them, but on them. And in some verses, it says upon them, depending on the translation that you have. Different feel. Think about those wording differences. It's not just about the spirit that's in you, but now the spirit's, I'll use this terminology, overpowering you, 
for a specific task to be witnesses, in this case, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Why? Because that was the mission of Jesus, right? That was the mission of Jesus. If you go to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the, the word power, interestingly enough, shows up again. And there's multiple, multiple times in the, in the New Testament and Old Testament that it's the same Hebrew or Greek word. But in verse, in verse 16, the apostle Paul is sharing from his experience, and he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed of it. Why? It's the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Folks, don't miss some of these correlations. Please don't miss some of these correlations. The gospel, the story of Jesus, is the power of God that busts into a person's life, empowered by the Spirit, and starts to do damage inside that person's life. It's the power, it's the dynamite that happens on the inside. It's what transforms your life from being a person who can't be looked at by God, right, to a person that's now been transferred into the kingdom of light and who's a friend of God. That's transformative, folks. And that's exactly what happened in your life when you came to the knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior. That transformative power that moved into your life, ripped apart the old, got rid of it, brought the new, and now you sit in a position of friendship, biblically speaking, friendship with God. That's shouting stuff, folks. Amen? That's transforming power. That's the, that's the power of the gospel that we preach. And when that power of the gospel, the story of Jesus, your story goes out into the demographic, wherever God takes you, whatever that box is, big or small, micro or macro, makes no difference, whatever God's calling you to. And by the way, both are equal. But the micro, as I explained first day, was when you're kind of in your hometown, perhaps. You're connecting with people right where you live. You're guiding your family well, and you're connecting with the, within those spheres of influence. And the, more of the macro level is when God is perhaps asking you to shift slightly and uproot and go there, right? Micro, macro. Equally important, just a different way of describing it. That's the power of the gospel that comes into your life rips apart the old, gets rid of it, boots it out, brings in the new, transfers you into the kingdom of light, and now you sit in friendship with God. Folks, it's absolutely amazing. If you think about the work of the cross, if you think about the work of what Jesus did, as I shared last evening, when Jesus, in his last week, right, moving into Jerusalem, set his face, according to the Old Testament prophecy, right, set his face like a flint, moved towards Jerusalem, nothing was going to stop him from reaching that objective. That was the objective, the cross. And like we talked about, was that easy? Absolutely not. It was the most difficult thing that Jesus could have ever done. He knew that the cross was going to mean a couple of different things. The weight of the world was going to be mounted on his shoulders, on one hand. And the worst of the worst, Father God has to turn his back on his son. Why? Why did he do it? Love. Love. Absolute, astounding love. 
when you move out into a sphere of influence with the power of the gospel that connects with the spiritual power of God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal Jesus into the life of somebody else. There's something amazing and dynamic that happens in that person's life. You're connecting the power of the gospel, the dynamite of the gospel, connected to the Spirit who reveals Jesus to people. And that's dynamite in the life of somebody. It doesn't mean they're going to accept it. doesn't mean they're going to give you a hug and say, thank you for bringing that message. You're only being obedient to what God's asking you to do as it relates to the vision that he's called you to do it with. You're fulfilling the why. You're loving on people. You're sharing Jesus with people. You're connecting those dots. And folks, the Spirit of God, as we read about in four or five different passages, teaches us, reminds us of what Jesus said, testifies to who Jesus is, convicts of sin, guides us into all truth, and glorifies or exalts the name of Jesus. You can't get much better than that. Can't get much better than that. Now, how does that all happen? I'm convinced through personal experience that it comes down to two songs ago of what we sang. A willingness to lay it down and to surrender. To surrender. At a heart level. Which says, Jesus, no boxes anymore. I give it all over. I'm done. I'm done. I need you. Jesus likened, Jesus likened in inviting the Spirit's power uh, into your life like a child asking a father for a piece of bread. Just faith. Just ask, trust, surrender, yield, obedience, taking steps of obedience and then walking in that power. There's a couple of illustrations that I'm going to use and I'm not even sure exactly how I'm going to do this, to be honest with you. Um, there was, in the year 1821, okay, in the year 1821, there was a stubborn, self-righteous lawyer. He was trying to figure it out all on his own. Couldn't ever get to God. Couldn't figure out how to get there. And struggled just massively, just struggled. And in a specific pursuit of the ways of God came full circle to where he confronted Jesus face to face and realized that his working wasn't working. All he needed to do was surrender and trust Jesus. That lawyer's name was Charles Finney, which I'm sure some of you have heard about Charles Finney. How many of you have heard about Charles Finney? Okay, most of you. Do you, know the, do you know the story of Charles Finney? Some of the story, perhaps. We happen to live in a city that was impacted by the revival of Charles Finney. On October 10, 1821 is when Finney was converted and he came to faith in Jesus and had a wonderful, miraculous encounter with the Holy Spirit that changed his life forever. He walked out of that. He walked out of that a changed man and he told the first client that came to his door that he was supposed to argue his case 
this phrase, and then he left it all. I have a retainer from the Lord. Sorry, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ to plead his cause, and I cannot plead yours. And that was it. He was a successful lawyer. He, he was a phenomenal lawyer. He had, you know, he's 29 years old. Sky's the limit as relates to where he could have gone. But what he realized is that when God came into his life, there was something amazingly and much more amazingly important about life, and he wanted to plead the case for God. He had a retainer with the Lord. In February 1 of 1826, five years later, is when Charles Finney started to work in and around the Utica area where we now live. Well, we're pushing, what, 193, 194, seven years later past the Finney Revival that's kind of swept through that whole corridor. Now, regardless of what you think about Finney, there's some, obviously some differing opinions about Finney. He was an interesting character. One of the things you can't argue about was the, the, the far-reaching implications of what the gospel did for a very long period of time up and down the corridor, Rochester, New York, up through Utica, New York City, uh, Utica, Lowellville, Krogan, North Governor, just kept going northward. The streets that we walk on today, at one point, during the Finney Revival, one of the comments that was made and appeared to be true, every household was affected with the gospel. Every household, every life, every family was touched with the gospel. Again, we're pushing some 200 years ago. I walk those same streets today. What is there, 2% Christianity in the city that we live in, roughly? It's, it's mind-blowing. House after house after house where there's no Christianity, no light of Jesus shining, and it astounds me. And one of the things that I do is say, God, can it happen again the same way or differently, but can it happen again? Can a revival stir the heart of this city in the same way that it did then? Demographically, it's a 100% different city today than it was then. And it oftentimes causes me to struggle in that prayer because I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know what that's going to look like. But that's what I pray for. You're welcome to come join me, walk with me, and we'll pray together. Uh, we could use more than one praying. I mean, by certainly my family's praying as well. But, but more prayers, the better. What was behind the Finney revivals is not what's often talked about. And that was an attitude and a spirit of prayer. There was a fellow by the name of Daniel Nash. Some of you probably are familiar with the name Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash would sneak into towns where Finney was going to in an unsuspecting sort of way at times. He would try to get together with one or two or three or sometimes four people and spend hours, if not days, in prayer that God would bring revival where Finney was going to go to next. And time after time after time, it was the same effect. God moved. God moved. One of the things that I keep asking myself is this question. How much am I willing to give up to see revival actually happen? How much do I care about the souls 
of men. Do I care as much as the Spirit of God does, who says he will testify to who Jesus is if I will only match that up with the gospel that flows out of my mouth and life? It's a lingering question, folks. How much do we care about lostness around us? Because what was once a city that was actually revived to where the whole city was changed, and literally, like it says, every household being affected by the gospel, where you'd have locations really close to where we live, streets away from where we live, where a lot of stagecoaches would come through, and people knew when people were coming through, they weren't going to leave likely without being converted. And what's interesting about that is there happened to be a man that came from another location where we lived or close to where we lived in Lowellville, New York, north of there, came into the city of Utica, dead set against Jesus, left Utica with a flame of the gospel in his life and the revival spread to Lowellville and then the Krogan and then just continued northward. The stories go on and on and on. There was a willingness to surrender. There was a willingness to lay it down. There was a willingness to go to great lengths to see God move in broken people's lives. And I'm asking you today, and I'm asking myself the same question, to what length would I go to reach that objective that God has clearly given me, the vision that God has clearly given me? And am I surrendered to the Spirit? Am I willing to go where He wants me to go? I'm going to give you a couple more stories, um, because sometimes I think that stories do impact. It was probably about a year ago, or, or so, maybe a little bit more, uh, in Utica, that I was walking around the city of Utica as I did daily in the mornings praying, praying, God, send revival, send revival, pour out your spirit, draw people to yourself. They're lost, they're dying, they need to know Jesus. And I happened to, and that's usually what I do in the mornings when I amble around the city of Utica. And in the afternoon, I'd gotten home from work a little bit earlier, and I was doing the same thing, and I felt like God was saying, go pray. And so it was a beautiful day. I got out and prayed, walked and prayed. And this doesn't happen all the time, folks, okay? There's so many times that I'm disobedient to what God's asking me to do. I was walking and praying, and I walked by a basketball court, and there was one lone African-American shooting Basket. Basketball. I love basketball. Grew up playing basketball. That's all that I wanted to do was play basketball. So I took note of the fact when I was walking by that praying, that was a great jump shot. Just, just a beautiful shot. And inwardly, the voice of God came in and said, tell him. It was distinctly as I'm telling that to you, the Spirit of God said, tell him. So I did. I yelled across the court and I said, that was a good jump shot. The honest truth, guys, he walked over, spilled his life story, came to faith in Jesus, baptized, he's, he's Haitian, and we're working with his family. It's just... Oh, 
how many times? I've not done that. Or how many times have I missed that because I was caught up in peripherals? Things of no kingdom value that didn't really mean anything. I was too busy when God was saying, speak it. I'm preaching to myself this evening as much as I'm preaching to you. I believe with all my heart that what I read in the Bible from the book of John and Acts, the Bible, is a possibility for our lives today in exactly the same way as it was a possibility for them in that era. If we would only sensitize ourselves to the voice of the Spirit, we say that the Spirit lives in us. And he does. If we're born again, he does. But how many of us have surrendered and invited his Spirit and his power to come upon our lives and to forever change us in the way perhaps we view life and ministry? Wanting him to speak, wanting to hear his voice, wanting to be directed by his presence. It's a question I'm asking myself, folks, because I know it, come, you know it boils down to yieldedness to him. It boils down to surrender. And so I'm pushing that out to you to say, in that particular case with this young Haitian gentleman coming to faith in Jesus, it all made sense. God was working. He was just inviting me to work with him in co-laboring to just make a simple statement to compassionately love a person I didn't know to encourage him in his jump shot and then to hear his story and start to connect some dots folks it happens a lot it happens a lot that God is definitely speaking and are we listening and are we hearing that's just one illustration I'm going to share another Story. Is it okay if I share another story? Everybody cool with that? Okay. Hopefully it relates. So this is a little bit different. This is when I was a missionary in Ecuador, in southern Ecuador. And the, 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 these are the things and these are the ways that God moves mysteriously that humanly you look at it and you're like, that was the biggest mistake of life, but God just did something amazing through it. I don't know how he did it. And you just walk away and shake your head a little bit and say, praise God, I don't know what happened. We were working out of a location in southern Ecuador called, the city was called Cuenca, Cuenca, Ecuador. Mountainous city in the Andes Mountains. A city of about 500,000 people. Wasn't a lot of missional work done in that city. There was a lot to do in that city. Very staunch city. And we had connected with what was called the Sese Cafe. It was an inner varsity I think it was InterVarsity, run just to the side of the college campus. Uh, there was multiple, many colleges in the city. So we were working with a lot of students. So we would spend a lot of time at the cafe meeting people. I was at the counter talking to someone that was working at the counter. 
And in walked a guy, and he said, I would like to speak with you in English, in English, which was very abnormal. He just didn't ever hear that. Decent English. He said, I would like to speak with you. And I said, love to. <laughs> so we talked, and he told me he was an English major at college, at school. We built an instant connection and an instant bond. He wasn't a believer. We built an instant connection that led to a lot of conversations in English and Spanish. He wanted to learn, learn English. I wanted him to, look at, to know Jesus. And so a lot of back and forth conversations about, about English, about the English language, and also about Jesus. He opened himself up to studying the Bible, and it was a specific study that we were doing. I invited him into that. Over the process of a short period of time, he surrendered his life to Jesus in an amazing sort of way. Really didn't see it coming, but he gave his life to Jesus. A short time period, within weeks, he said, hey, I would, Nate, I would love for you to meet my family. And so he said, let's try to plan a date so you can come meet my family. I said, love to, love to. Uh, his name is Sixto. Some of you have probably actually, some of you older folks probably have met him. He's been here in the U.S. a time or two. Sixto uh, met me in Cuenca one day. We jumped on the bus on a Saturday, went back to his village. And what I didn't know, because I had failed to ask, was about his family. Until we got in the front door of the house, and I realized this is a family. It was full of people. He has 12 siblings. They all have, I don't know, four to eight, nine, ten kids. The house was just busting at the seams with people, siblings. His mom was sitting there, all waiting to meet this North American, whatever he has to bring. So we got connected. We built a connection. I felt a little bit like Paul and Cornelius. Anyway, uh, we built a connection, and they verbalized day one. We want to study the Bible. Perfect. So we started to go out, study the Bible with that family, Sixto and the family. Over a process of time, most of them came to faith in Jesus. Today, all of them are saved. Today, they've reached beyond them, into communities beyond them with the gospel, and have upstarted different works beyond them in villages. Stuff that you can't, you can't dream, you can dream about it. Stuff that you could never put a plan in place that says this is the way that it's going to go. In the book of John, it talks about the Spirit blowing, how he blows, and who can understand his ways, right? Who can understand his ways? When you embark on a journey of obedience to God, I want to give you a guarantee. Whether you see it or not, God, through the power of his Spirit, is going to supercharge that thing to take it further than what you can possibly see. Think about it like this. If you think about missions, or you think about that box, or you think about whatever ministry, or you think about your spheres of influence, your, your fishbowl that you live in, okay? The people that are with you and swimming in your fishbowl. If you can affect the life of one person and focus on disciple-making, and discipleship, teaching that person the ways of Jesus. You have no idea what implications that can bring with it. Number one, you've possibly, quite possibly, through the power of God, started a new lineage of faith, probably within a family line where there never was a Christian before. Think about that fact. 
When that takes root and the power of the Spirit gets involved and that person starts to move it from here to here to here to here, you're looking at multiplication happening exponentially. And you may never see it. You may never know the ultimate outcome of that. It's just simple steps of obedience and trusting God in the process and letting the Spirit do His work. Folks, it sounds way too simplistic when I say it. I know that there's a lot more entailed than that. I get it. I understand it. My wife and I have a fairly large family. We're busy. But we do give our lives to wanting to preach the gospel of Jesus because we believe that it has the power to change a life. Smallest common denominator. One person. Think about the story that I shared yesterday morning about Richard Wormbrandt. Very few of you knew who the person was, Christian Wolfs, that brought, that brought, I'm losing names here, that brought Richard to faith in Jesus. I don't think anybody had heard of the name of Pippin, who brought Christian Wolfs to Jesus. And Pippin, who was struggling all his life because he'd only brought one person to Jesus. But look at the ramifications of taking seriously the call to do what God wants you to do. I'm going to open it up this evening to just trust God in the process of this. But if you're sitting here this evening saying, Acts 1.8, I desire whatever it looks like, okay? I desire to surrender because I desire the power of God to be his witness in my Jerusalem, my Samaria, to the end of my world. I want to allow you to respond to that and to just simply trust that in whatever way that God chooses to impact your life with whatever that power looks like for you, uniquely for you, so be it. I'm just asking you to surrender and to yield, to let it go, and to trust God. So I'm going to close my eyes and pray because I feel really awkward right now. And I'm going to let it hang. If you want to come forward, fine, no problem. You want to kneel, pray, do that. If you want to stay seated, spend some time in prayer with God, do that. Do whatever God wants you to do. But I would encourage you, unlock the box. Father, this evening we bow before God, creator of heaven and earth. We're nothing but little ants in your presence. But what we're asking for, Father, is an ounce of the power necessary to be witnesses to Jesus in the world that you've put us into, in the fishbowls that you've uniquely positioned us in. God, we want to be moved by your presence. Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you breathe on us, I pray, with your power, with your love, with your anointing, to go and to be and to do everything, God, that you want us to be and to do. So Jesus, have your way.
Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.